Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 28 entitled Illet vs Mitson. Of all the cases in recent years, this has to be the one that made the biggest headlines, Illet versus Mitson. It did so probably because of the central issue of testamentary freedom, and just how much freedom we really do have in light of the Inheritance Provision for Family Independence Act 1975. In brief, the testator made a will, leaving her estate to a number of charities and leaving nothing to her daughter, with whom she had no contact for many years. The daughter contested the will, and succeeded. You can imagine, therefore, some of the more sensationalist headlines, such as, Judges say that your will can be ignored, and the rather eloquent, Blessed are the dependents, for they shall inherit the earth. So, Let's dive into the facts and see how this twisting, turning case made its way through the courts. In 1961, Mrs Jackson's husband passed away when she was pregnant with her only child, Heather, now Mrs Heather Illot. In 1978, when Mrs Illot was 17, she left home secretly to live with her boyfriend, of whom Mrs Jackson did not approve. That was the start of an estrangement with only three brief and failed attempts at reconciliation between mother and daughter that lasted until Mrs Jackson's death in 2004. Mrs Illot stayed with her boyfriend and they married, having five children together. They lived their lives entirely independent of Mrs Jackson and had no financial connection to her whatsoever. The first attempt at reconciliation was in 1983, after the birth of Mrs Illot's first child. Mrs Jackson visited her daughter in hospital, and there were several subsequent telephone calls, but they ended after a row between Mr Illot and Mrs Jackson. Later conversations between mother and daughter occurred in 1994 and again in 1999, after chance encounters in public places, but they were short-lived and failed to establish significant common ground. The district judge that initially heard the case found that Mrs Jackson was capricious and unfair in many of the criticisms of Mrs Illot, as were recorded in letters, and that her decision to exclude her altogether from her estate was harsh and unreasonable. Mrs Illot had sent an apology by letter to her mother, but that had not satisfied her. Equally, Mrs Illot and her husband contributed to the difficulties in sustaining any kind of reconciliation. Mrs Jackson's decision to exclude her daughter from the will was not made in haste. She made a will in spring of 1984, along with a letter of wishes, which stated, She, meaning her daughter, did not get in touch with me, and I heard from her husband's parents that she had had a baby boy. When I heard about this, I visited her in hospital and took flowers and brought up her preambulator and other presents. However, she made herself very unpleasant and wished to have nothing to do with me. Therefore, she receives nothing from me at my death. This intention to exclude Mrs Illot remained and was reiterated in her 2002 will, 
when another side letter was made, stating that she felt no moral or financial obligation towards her. Mrs Illot's evidence made clear that her mother told her of this later decision. That 2002 will left a modest legacy to a benevolent association connected with her late husband's employment, and then to charities with which she had no particular connection during her lifetime, but which represented her freely made and considered choice of beneficiaries. The estate, of which the largest single component was a house in the home counties, was worth, in round figures, £486,000. The district judge described Mrs Illot's financial situation as modest. The family lived in a house rented from a housing association, with four of their five children living at home. Only one of the four children was working, and paid a small contribution to the household expenses. Mrs Illot had elected since the birth of their first child to stay at home and was not employed other than as her husband's bookkeeper for £240 a year. Mr Illot had intermittent work as a supporting actor and earned just over £4,100 per year. In addition to this, the family received child benefit, working tax credits, housing benefit and council tax benefit. The judge assessed the total annual net income at £20,387. The family lived within their means but had little additional disposal income, meaning that a lot of their household equipment was old, their car had been purchased for £245 and kept breaking down. They had never been able to afford a family holiday and they were unable to afford extras for their children such as music or sports lessons. The presence of some of the means-tested benefits was quite key to the Court of Appeal hearing, as we'll see a bit later. So, there's the background circumstances of the relationship and the financial situation at the time of the case. The claim was brought under the Inheritance Provision for Family Independence Act 1975, also known as the 1975 Act. There are certain categories of people that can submit an application under the Act as follows, and put in simple terms, a. the wife or husband of the deceased, b. a former wife or husband of the deceased who was not yet remarried, and this by extension to someone who, for a period of two years prior to the deceased's death, lived in the same household as the deceased and as the husband or wife of the deceased, c. a child of the deceased, d. any person who was treated as a child of the family, and e any person who, immediately before the death of the deceased, was being maintained either wholly or partly by the deceased. The Act goes on to state that an application can be made by these people where the disposition of the deceased's estate does not make reasonable financial provision for them. And that reasonable financial provision should mean for the applicant to receive for his or her maintenance. The court pointed out that the concept of maintenance is no doubt broad, but it cannot extend to any or everything which would be desirable for the claimant to have. It cited an earlier case in which the court found that the word maintenance means only payments which enable the applicant to discharge the cost of his daily living at whatever standard of living is appropriate to him. It mentioned that these would tend to be recurring expenses. The court also clarified that there is flexibility in what level maintenance may be provided for and should be assessed on the facts of each case, and that it is not limited to subsistence levels. 
The other important point that was made was that maintenance is by definition the provision of income rather than capital, but it need not necessarily be provided for by way of periodical payments, such as by using a trust. It would often be cheaper and more convenient for other beneficiaries and executors if income was provided by way of a lump sum from which both income and capital can be drawn over the years. The court then looked at the concept of what is meant by reasonable financial provision, as this is the condition for making an order under the 1975 Act. The word reasonable by necessity gives rise to considering what is unreasonable in the provisions made. The case of Re Coventry 1980 was cited as follows. It is not the purpose of the Act to provide legacies or rewards for meritorious conduct. An Englishman still remains at liberty at his death to dispose of his own property in whatever way he pleases. In order to enable the court to interfere with and reform those dispositions, it must, in my judgment, be shown not that the deceased acted unreasonably, but that, looked at objectively, his disposition produces an unreasonable result. The other side of this is the consideration the court must give to the needs of the claimant. It cannot be that there is simply a moral claim, but that there are, as the court stated, necessitous circumstances. On this point, the court cited the same case of re-coventry with the following passage. It cannot be enough to say, here is a son of the deceased. He is in necessitous circumstances. There is property of the deceased which could be made available to assist him. There must be established some sort of moral claim by the applicant, some reason why it can be said that, in the circumstances, it is unreasonable that no provision was made. In this same consideration of reasonable financial provision, the court stated that if it concluded that reasonable financial provision had not been made, the needs of the applicant are not necessarily the measure of what provision ought to be made. The nature of the relationship should also be taken into account. The final point to mention when considering the legal principles is the summary that was made of the two stages of the process the courts are dealing with. First, has there been a failure to make reasonable financial provision? And if so, then second, what order ought to be made? Okay, so now we have the background circumstances and we have the legal principles to be applied. So, what happened when the case initially went to trial? The first finding by the district judge was that the deceased's will did not make reasonable provision for Mrs Illot. He awarded her £50,000 from the estate. Unsatisfied with that, Mrs Illot appealed seeking capital provision amounting to half or more of the estate. The charitable beneficiaries cross-appealed this, arguing that there had not been any failure of reasonable provision. The cross-appeal was dealt with first, and it concluded that there was no lack of reasonable provision, and that the district judge had made an error in principle in asking himself whether the deceased had acted reasonably, rather than whether there had been a failure to make reasonable provision, and therefore cancelled the £50,000 initially awarded. Mrs Illot then appealed to the Court of Appeal, and keeping it brief, she succeeded. She was awarded £143,000 to buy the house she lived in, with an additional £20,000 optional drawdown facility. 
both of these sums were provided so as not to adversely affect Mrs Illot's benefits. It is with this information that the case came to the Supreme Court. Lady Hale presented the court's findings with some history and comparison of our jurisdiction to other jurisdictions. She said, In many modern legal systems, mostly those descended from Roman law, complete freedom of testation is unknown. Members of the family enjoy fixed rights of inheritance to the estate of a deceased, which leave only limited scope for the deceased to make his own dispositions. In those systems, the claims of descendants of the deceased are favoured over the claims of a surviving spouse. The theory is that the property belongs to the family or lineage rather than to the owner for the time being and should pass down the bloodline. Early English law also recognised certain fixed rights of inheritance, but these were only between husbands and wives and the limited rights given to widows and widowers disappeared long ago. In 1971, the Law Commission published a wide-ranging consultation paper on the subject, which included discussion on the rights of inheritance for spouses and children, as follows. The principle of absolute freedom of testation is acceptable only if the view were taken that it is more important to be able to dispose of property than to meet natural and legal obligations to the family. They raised the possibility that a surviving spouse might have fixed inheritance rights, but they rejected the idea that a surviving child might do so, as children play less part in building up the family assets than do spouses, and they are more likely to be self-supporting adults independent of their parents. This report concluded, however, that it was neither necessary nor desirable to introduce a system of fixed inheritance rights on the basis that their proposals for improving the system of discretionary family provision would be implemented. This became, of course, the 1975 Act. When the Law Commission returned to the subjects of family provision in 2008, family structures were a great deal more varied than they were in 1971. With more unmarried couples living together, more children born to unmarried couples, and more partners separated and forming new relationships, often blending children from earlier relationships with children from the new. The findings of the 2008 review did not directly impact this case, but the research was of interest. That research concluded that there was strong support for testamentary freedom, for reasons of individualism and human rights. But underlying this freedom was an assumption of reasonableness. That testators had good reasons for their actions. Nevertheless, there were circumstances in which it should be possible to challenge a will. One was where there was good reason to think that the will did not reflect the true wishes of the testator, and the other was where the testator's decisions were clearly unreasonable. Examples of that unreasonableness was where the decision was clearly unfair, cutting somebody out of a will who had contributed directly or indirectly to the deceased's wealth, or who had earned a share by caring for the deceased whilst alive or where children had enriched the lives of their parents, or to exclude a potential beneficiary who was disabled or vulnerable and where the alternative was state aid. These and other reasons were amongst the variety that contributed to a belief that descendants should be entitled to a share of the deceased's estate. This research was given in the case to show the wide range of public opinion about the circumstances in which adult descendants ought, or ought not, to be able to make a claim on an estate. 
The problem with the present law is that it gives virtually no help in deciding how to evaluate those opinions or balance them with other claims on the estate. The only guidance the court is given is, one, whether the estate makes reasonable financial provision for the applicant, two, if it does not, the actual provision to be ordered is limited to maintenance, and three, that in deciding both of these questions, the financial resources and needs of the applicant, the obligations of the deceased, the size of the estate, the relative vulnerability of the applicant, and any other relevant matter such as conduct of the applicant should be taken into account. This clearly therefore still remains a matter of judgment. In this case, the district judge had the unenviable task of evaluating the complete disinheritance of an adult child that was heavily dependent on state benefits in favour of charities in which the deceased had shown little or no interest during her life. The Supreme Court suggested that there might be three potential options available. The first option is to make no order at all. The applicant was self-sufficient, albeit largely reliant on public funds, and had been for many years, and without any expectation of inheriting from her mother. Second option is to make an order that gave the applicant what she most needed, and saving the public purse the most money. This would be the money to purchase her rented property, with housing being one of the first things that anyone needs for their maintenance, along with food and fuel. This would also be benefit-sufficient from the public's point of view, as it saved the substantial sums payable in housing benefit. Third option would be for the district judge's decision to stand and provide £50,000. The downside of this was that it negatively impacted the means-tested benefits of the applicant. Option 3 would have the effect of enabling the applicant to purchase and replace much-needed household appliances and decor, and perhaps take the family on holiday. Unless used this way, it would impact benefits. The court summarised, therefore, it was likely that options 1 or 2 were preferable, and that option 2 was in the best interest of both the applicant and the public interest in this very unusual set of circumstances that this case presented. The closing comments express the view that the present state of the law in this area is unsatisfactory, with no guidance as to the factors to be taken into account in deciding whether an adult child is deserving or undeserving of reasonable maintenance. Okay, so there we go, Illot versus Mitzen. An unusual case, a famous case, and hopefully one that can help you to see some of the ins and outs of the decision-making process in 1975 Act claims. As far as how we can learn something from this, well, you could ask yourself how you might have helped the testator to see her wishes carried out. It's worth noting that the testator had a consistency of her testamentary intentions. Those didn't change over the course of many years. And she wrote a reasons why letter, which is, of course, good practice. But there was little in the way of any support during her life for the charities that she left her estate to. Perhaps some lifetime gifting might have supported their claim. There's also the possibility of including a non-contest condition on a gift to her daughter. In other words, to leave a legacy on the condition that she did not contest the will. There has been a very recent case on this and I'll put that in the schedule of episodes to go over at some point soon. Of course, it's sensible for us to inform our clients at the time of making a will about the possibility of claims under the 1975 Act. 
whilst we might not necessarily be able to accurately assess the merits of a claim at that time, we can certainly indicate that it is possible and can explore what options might be available to a testator. It's definitely useful for us to know more about the 1975 Act for that reason. Alright, I hope you have found that episode useful. This is a slightly longer than usual episode, so I think we will wrap it up there. All the best until next time, and thank you for listening. <laughs>